Today, I would like to talk about prayer. So if you have a Bible, please open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Um, if you would keep your Bible fairly handy this morning, I'm going to have you use it a lot today. Ephesians 6. Before summer, we were in a series in Ephesians we called Made and Crafted. And when we concluded that series, oh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. You can get one and you can take it home. And you can start reading it. And it's amazing. So Bibles, everybody. Um, so uh, we, we were in a series before the summer called Made and Crafted. And when I concluded that series, I promised that we would do a series on spiritual warfare when I got back from sabbatical. So promises made, promises kept. Wish you didn't make that promise, but whatever, here we are. Um, <laughs> So we're in the series that we start today. We're calling it The Good Fight. And um, I want to begin this topic of spiritual warfare. We're going to actually get more into the topic of spiritual warfare next week. But I'd like to start our series where Paul concludes his words on the spiritual fight that we are in. He concludes with prayer. And we're going to see how prayer is actually the most important part of spiritual warfare. So prayer. And today I want to talk about prayer as resistance. Prayer is resistance. So if you would, we're going to be in verses 18 through 20, specifically verse 18. But let me get us some context and start in verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'll start there. I'll read and I'll pray. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in our text this morning, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, this morning I would like to lift up every person in this room and what they bring into this room, including their tiredness, Lord, their fears, their distracted mind, their woundedness, their emotional and sexual preoccupations, and even their boredom. I lift it to you, Lord, hear and see where we are at right now, and would you bring comfort where that's needed? Would you bring exhortation where that's needed? And for those who have just come here this morning to sit at your feet to worship and love and learn from you, I pray their cups will be full and overflowing today. And I pray, God, that you would give me the words, I believe you have given me the words, but the right way to say them, 
Anoint me, God. I need your help even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. During my time off this summer, Ash and I spent some time in Hawaii. And Hawaii is a wonderful place. Um, it's very hot there and humid there. And we're from here in San Francisco where we're not really used to the sun. Um, and so we were kind of sunned out. We were burnt out on the sun. We were like sunburnt and exhausted and tired. So we're like, we need to escape the sun for just a day so, and be in AC. So we went and saw a movie in Hawaii, a dark air-conditioned theater in Hawaii. Um, and we went and saw that movie, Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's epic movie. And we got there, and oh, AC was so nice. I grew up in Bakersfield, so I have this really great love relationship with air conditioning. <laughs> and um, so we walk in, it's air conditioning, and it hits us, just, oh, it's so great. And, uh, and we sit, and they have these um, leather uh, reclining chairs in the theater. Have you seen those? Like, I mean, they have like full automatic like layout, and it's um, it, incredible. AC, leather, and uh, like popcorn, soda. Uh, I'm like in my happy place, right? Just like this is, this is me in my happy place. The preview start coming on, and I, and, 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 I, and I start eating my popcorn, and I realized that they gave me the very bottom of the barrel of the popcorn, so I just had crumbs. And I was just livid. I was so mad. I'm like, I can't believe this. I, I, and, and I didn't want to get up. I'm, like, I'm not going to go change this because I love previews. I don't want to miss the previews. So I sent Ash to, to go do it. Um, <laughs> She volunteered. Okay, I promise. She volunteered. She's like, let me go change it. I'm like, no, no, no I'm fine. I'll suffer. Like, I'll just, I'll, I'm okay. She's like, no, we paid for this. Like, anyway, so she goes back, and then the movie started, and it was great, and it was awesome. And the movie's a World War II movie, and it's intense the entire way through, and then it ends, and then we walk out of the theater, and as we walk out, Ash and I were like um, almost stunned in the silence. And the first words out of Ashley's mouth were, war is so intense. And I'm like, yes, I was thinking the same thing. War is so intense. And then my second thought was, I'm so addicted to comfort. Like I watched that whole war movie while sitting on a leather reclining seat in air conditioning and I was mad about my popcorn. <laughs> And I was thinking, as I, and I still haven't forgotten, I, I, the, 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 in many ways, I have bought into the myth that comfort and peace are normative. I bought into, like, comfort and peace are the way it's supposed to be. There's that famous line from Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects, the movie. It goes, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist, right? I agree with that, but I would add another layer to that, maybe even a greater trick of Satan, is to convince Christians that we are not at war. Culturally, San Francisco is a very anti-violent community. And you might find it comforting to know that the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament are anti-violent as well. What you will not find, however, is the idea of being anti-war. The New Testament is very pro-war. It's explicit that we are in a war and we should actually be at war. Just not the kind of war that you think about with bullets and drone strikes and materialistic violence. But it is pro-war nonetheless. Look at Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we have come so much to expect comfort in the West and which in some ways is good and right. However, the dark side of that 
is because we have come to expect peace, many of us, most of us have lost sight of the reality that we are in a war. So point one, if you're taking notes, point one, we are at war, which means we have an enemy. Jesus says that the great enemy, the devil, has come to steal and to kill and destroy. We are at war against the enemy that seeks to do, to steal, kill, and destroy everything in our lives and in the life of the world. And like Kaiser Soze says, he does it subtly. So much so that we don't believe it's the devil. And the reality of evil has affected everything. It's affected our economy, our relationships, our politics, our workplaces, our entertainment, our justice system. There's even an unseen evil that has made its way to, to manifest its area in every part of our lives. And because of this war, we live lives struggling with sensuality and greed and sexuality and hate and bitterness and self-pity, and the list goes on. And the call for the follower of Jesus, according to Paul here in Ephesians, is that we are told what we are to do in this war is to stand. We are to stand in this war. Look at verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. I know if you grew up in church, all these like flashbacks of Sunday school are coming up, right? Like where you would put on the full armor of God. Anyway, so therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it will come, and it comes like an onslaught at us, like the day of evil, we, like we live in the day of evil. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. Stand, stand, stand. That first word, stand, is the word to stand against. The word to oppose or to resist. So Ephesians 6 is a teaching on what Christian resistance looks like. How are we to stand? How are we to stand against? How are we as Christians to resist? Ephesians 6 talks about this. So point two, if you're taking notes, we must resist in this war. We are at war, point one, point two, we must resist, we must stand. We must resist evil, we must resist the flesh, we must resist the devil. Now the culmination, of Christian resistance against the dark powers of this world, Paul would say is prayer. The culmination of everything Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, it culminates in prayer. So point three, this is a really quick sermon guys, I'm almost done. Point one, <laughs> we are at war. Point two, we must resist in this war. Point three, resistance is done through prayer. We must resist and resistance is done through prayer. So let's build out that third point for the rest of the sermon. Prayer as resistance. Prayer is given the highest importance in spiritual warfare. In the flow of this passage, prayer is how we stand. Once we get all the spiritual armor on, prayer is actually what we do with all the armor. In this passage, it says that we are to suit up with all this armor. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. We're to grab the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible. And in many ways, our mod and a lot of you guys, if you have a Bible, your modern translation at verse 18, look down, starts a new paragraph, right? So it almost feels like you've talked about spiritual warfare and then, oh, one last thing, you should pray. But it's not a new paragraph in the original Greek. It's actually the culmination of the entire passage. And the original language is not separate. What, it, what Paul is saying is after you've put on everything, this is how you stand. You stand with prayer. Once you're suited up and you're there with the scriptures and you're there with the shield of, your shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt, all these things, 
We are to actively pray now. We are to move in and engage with God in prayer. And Paul elaborates on the importance of prayer with the word all. Look how many times he uses the word all. We are to pray in the spirit at all times. We are to pray with all kinds of prayer and supplication. We are to pray with all perseverance. We are to pray for all the saints. All, 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 all. All the time. Now, why don't we pray like this? Why don't we pray all the time? All the time. Prayer is like the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. Prayer is so hard. It's easier to sing. It's easier to memorize Bible verses. It's easier to do almost anything but pray. Why is it harder? We would much rather like tweet rant or whatever. We'd much rather march. We'd much rather sign up for a class on prayer. We would like, I, uh, I'll sign up for a class on prayer. Well, why don't you pray? No, no. I'm going to sign up for a class. We'd much rather sign up for a class on prayer. We'd much rather listen to Christian music. Why don't we pray? Answer, I don't think we, oftentimes we just don't get around to it. I mean, many of us want to pray. Like we get sucked into daily life. And I was asking you, do you want to pray? Most of us do actually want, I want to pray. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, you would probably say, yes, I would like to pray, meditate, be silent before a being, whatever, more. That's what you, we all would want to pray more. But why don't we pray? Henry Nouwen, a great spiritual author, says this, I want to pray, but I also want, don't want to miss out on anything. <laughs> Anyone relate to that? I want to pray, but I also don't want to miss out on anything. TV, movies, socializing with friends, drinking in the world. I want to pray, but I also don't want to miss out on Netflix. I don't want to miss out on fantasy football stats and how my team's doing. I don't want to miss out on spike ball on the weekends. I just don't want to miss out on all these things. And there's truth in this statement. We don't want to miss out on our kids. We don't want to miss out like, on, our, on our relationships. We, we feel like all these other things are more important than prayer. And so I think there's a truth there. If you can relate to that, you're like, I want to pray more, but I also don't want to miss out on anything. I think that is one of the answers, is that we don't want to miss out. But I also think there's another answer as well. I think we misunderstand the nature of prayer. I think there's part of us that kind of misunderstands the nature of prayer. So if you, again, open your, turn your Bibles to Luke 18, to the left a little bit. Luke 18. This is a parable uh, uh, taught by Jesus or told by Jesus on prayer. Luke 18, verse 1. This is the parable of the persistent widow. You might know it. It goes like this. Verse 1. Then Jesus told, it, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray. What did Paul say? Pray always. Always. Keep praying. Jesus said, let me, let me teach you a parable about always praying and not giving up on prayer. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared for what people thought. And there was a widow. And in that town who kept coming to this judge with a plea, she would say, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. 
I love that last part. It's actually really funny. He's like, this woman is crazy. And she knows where I park my car. I don't want to, I'm not messing around with this woman. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This parable is to illustrate the nature of prayer. And Jesus talks about a widow who's treated unjustly and a corrupt judge. Now, Jesus is not drawing the parallel between God and the corrupt judge. He's not saying God's like that corrupt judge. He's not doing that. He's drawing the parallel between the widow and our prayer lives. And the point is, if we truly understood prayer's nature, we would be like this widow. How so? This widow refused to accept her unjust situation. She was like, I will not accept this unjust situation at all. I was treated unjustly and I want justice. Even when the judge wanted to ignore her, I don't care about you woman. I don't care about God. I don't care about anyone. I'm corrupt. Unless you bribe me, I don't want any part of your case. She's like, I will not accept that. And she continued to plead her case with importunity, with persistence, despite discouragement before this judge. So much so that the judge started to feel threatened by her. It's like, are you threatening me? She's like, I'm not threatening you. I'm saying I want justice. Okay, fine. I'm going to give you justice. Just don't attack me. In the, same, in the same way the follower of Jesus, listen, this is us now. In the same way the follower of Jesus must refuse to accept the world in the fallen state. We must refuse to accept the sin of the world. We must refuse it. We don't go, you know what? That's just the way the world works. So many of us walk around this city, see all the brokenness and like, oh, that's San Francisco. Crazy. My wife and I like go around the city on Saturdays and we go for long walks and we see the most crazy stuff. I don't even want to talk about the stuff because it's not even pulpit worthy. I'm not allowed to talk about it. It's just crazy. And a lot of times we just drive through San Francisco like that's just the way the world is. Jesus is like, this is, this is why you've become asleep in your prayer life because you've accepted the world for the way it is. It would be like this woman saying, woman, just accept it. There is injustice in the world. Just go on with your life. She's like, I will not accept it. That is not the way it is. I will plead my case before this unjust judge. God's like, in the same way you, do not accept the world for the way it is. Do not accept the injustices in this world. Do not accept the evil in this world. Keep pleading before God. God, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way that the world is supposed to work according to your will. Your will's not being done here. And I will plead my case before you. I will come before you and you are not an unjust judge. You want what I want, God. Because this is your, I want your will. This is how, the, how we're supposed to pray. We must refuse to accept that this is the way life is. If you were to tell that widow, hey, this is the way life is, she'd probably get in your face and you would probably feel threatened. You're like, don't hurt me. I'm just, just the way the world is. She's like, I will not accept that. You know, Chance has that favorite, uh, that famous song, praises go up, blessings come down, right? This woman's like, like petitions go up and justice comes down. That's, this is her mindset. I continue. This is what Jesus is teaching. Our petition, 
our requests, our prayers go up to God and justice comes rolling down. It will. It will happen. And it will happen soon, as Jesus says, or it will happen ultimately. And what we do as, as people with the, the, like understanding the nature of how prayer works, we do not, we do not just resign to going, that's the way it is. Because it's a parable about prayer. Meaning, in essence, what this teaching, what this is teaching us about prayer is prayer is an act of rebellion. Prayer is an act of resistance. There is an aspect of prayer and the nature of prayer that is rebelling and resisting the world and its fallenness. We're resisting it. We're like, no, that is not the way it is. That is not the way it is. And in Jesus' name is not the way it is. And we're praying into that. We're saying, I don't accept it for this. It refuses to accept normal, what is outside of God's intention for the world. We don't just go to God and go, well, that's just the way it is, God. We're like, no, God, this is not the way it is. And we're, we're asking you to do something about this. Please and act, please. And if you resign yourself to the idea of life's inevitability, and this is just the way life is, then you also surrender the Christian view of God. You also forfeit the hope that in the power of God to change the world. You're like, God, and this is kind of maybe the, 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 when it boils down to it, it's this. It's our unbelief. Like, can God really change the world? To, to over, can God really overcome evil by good? Can God really put all wrongs to right? So back to our question. Why don't we pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with all perseverance for all God's people? I don't think it's because we lack passion. I think that this room is a very passionate room. You can almost feel the energy and the activity in this room. You, the church, this church in San Francisco is eager for activity. So much so that you desire the world to be different. I know you do. And for, and I believe that we want to do something about that. So then why don't we pray? It's not because we don't we lack passion. It's not that we just, because we don't care. I think we do care and we do have passion, but why don't we pray? And the answer is, I think that we don't believe it will make any difference. We deep down go, it doesn't really matter. God kind of already knows what I pray before I ask him. So why even talk to him? We just don't believe in its power. We either accept the unchangeability of a situation or we think prayer is, is not what's called for here. We have to do something more than pray. Have you ever heard of like people talk about, well, I've done everything I can, I might as well pray. Like it's the very last thing we do. Like I have nothing else to do, might as well pray. It's like we have this idea about prayer. It's not effective. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't really work. And we just accept the unchangeability of things. This woman teaches us don't do that. Remember the parable. It's not about getting in the face of unjust judges. The parable is about show them that we should always pray and not give up. We want to take this and go, well, it's about getting in front of the unjust people and like getting in their face. No, it's not. It's about us going, I'm going to keep praying and I'm not going to give up praying. And then I believe that somehow in my prayers, I will get involved with what God is doing. And it will change God's, maybe he will, it will change his heart on the situation, or his mind. God does that in the Old Testament. God says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. Like this, this is what, what we learn from this persistent widow who's treated unjustly. And so I don't think the problem is, lies in our, the practice of our prayer as much as I believe it's the nature 
what we believe about the nature of prayer. We don't, I don't think we think prayer works. Which brings us back to how Jesus ended the parable. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What he's saying is, when, I, when the Son of Man returns, or it could even mean when he's, he is the Son of Man, by the way, when, as Jesus shows up on earth, is there faith there? Is there people that Jesus, when, when, when we get involved in prayer, Jesus is like, do you believe that that can happen? And we're like, oh yeah, we believe. Like, are we a church that goes, we believe that God can do this? I mean, if we were to ask this real poignantly, it would be like, when, if Jesus was to come to Real San Francisco, would he find faith there? Would he find people that go, yeah, we believe in God's word. We believe in God's power and ability to change a situation. And we play with, pray with importunity. We pray with persistence. We plead our case before God. So in prayer, in its classical sense, draws us into God's involvement in the brokenness of the world on God's terms, not necessarily our terms. It's resistance to the way the world works. Prayer is resistance to the way the powers of this dark world choose to influence and normalize rebellion to God. Prayer is resisting all of that internally and then outwardly in the world as well. The theologian, David Wells, not the baseball pitcher, but the theologian, David Wells, says this. He says, it is impossible to seek to live in God's world on his terms, doing his work in a way that is consistent with who he is without engaging in regular prayer. It is impossible to really live in God's world on his terms, doing his work, being consistent in a way that's consistent with who he is without, because in prayer we gain perspective, clarity, we partner with God, we plead like this is not the way the world's supposed to work, this is not the way our nation's supposed to work, this is not the way the nations are supposed to work. This is not it, God. Do something, act, and it's us coming for God and pleading. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation because it's about to get real. We get a, a really clear picture of this in Revelation. Revelation is a trip. Don't come up to me asking me questions. I don't know. Like, I just don't know. I'm just going to read you a part of the text and tell you what I think it says, okay? Revelation 8. Did I say that? Sorry. Revelation 8. It's Revelation, by the way, not Revelations, but that's a different sermon. Okay, Revelation 8. Verse, um, this is verses 1 through 5. Um, John uh, has this crazy revelation. And um, he has this revelation of seven seals being broken open. And with every seal, something else happens in heaven and on earth. Um, and then the, the eighth seal is open. Verse uh, 8, and when he opened the, oh, sorry, the seventh seal, my bad. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That's probably a long time. Like heaven, like I don't think there is time in heaven, so that's a really long time. Verse 2, and I saw, John says, and I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from, God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it at earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, what's happening? Now the golden censer is um, like a giant incense holder, basically, right? 
and it, was, it held the incense offering used specifically on the Day of Atonement in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, every single day, there was a, not a gold one, but a silver one, that was, that was uh, the prayers of the people were put almost like inside this incense. It was lit from the altar, and then it, the, the incense, the smell, the aroma went up to God as like a, a picture of our prayers rising up to God. Incense was a physical display of the prayers of the people going up to God. The priest on the Day of Atonement would be given a golden censer and he put all the incense he could pack into the censer and he would ascend the sacrificial altar into the courtyard of the sanctuary and he would grab fire from the altar and scoop coals of that into like this bowl and then he would take the the incense and then fire from the altar and he would go all the way into the sanctuary right before the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. And then before God, he would mix incense and the coals and then he'd put them together and this beautiful smelling smoke, this incense would rise into the presence of God. Okay, That's, that's the Old Testament imagery that we're given here. Here in Revelation... The angel is given a lot of incense to mingle with the prayers of people. And he, he puts the prayer and the incense onto the golden altar and the smell goes up to God. And then something new happens. The angel takes the prayers of the people, which is the incense on the fire of the altar, and he grabs the, so it's, it would be incense on the fire, and so it's just this smelling, smoldering thing before the throne of God, and it's going up, and it smells really amazing, and he grabs it with his hands, he goes, he grabs all this, and it's like this burning ember of fire, and he takes it, and he throws it down to earth, and it goes all the way down to earth, and he hits the earth, and then there's these peals of lightning, and thunder, and rumblings, and flashes, and an earthquake. Now, these are not natural disasters that are happening on earth. These are actually biblical images of the, dis dis the, the disruptive presence of God in a fallen world. Whenever the presence of God was active in the Old Testament, there would be thunder or rumblings or lightning or earthquakes. And so what this is a picture of is the, a powerful representation of the nature of prayer. As our prayers go up to God, God acts. Prayer is the act by which the people of God become incorporated into the presence and the action of God in the world. It's like our prayers mix with God and then God acts on the world. This is a powerful, vivid, almost like psychedelic trip interpretation of what that is. Like our the prayers of people go up to God and then God affects the earth through our prayers. This is what we were created for. This is what every single soul was, those of you that are, are, are redeemed by Christ, this is, what you, this is your redeemed life right here. And if you're not redeemed, this is what you long for. I was reminded of this pretty potently when I was on like a personal um, retreat during my time off. And, um, you know, we've lived through a really difficult season as a church, and there's been a, there is a lot of hurting people, and there still is a lot of hurt that has happened in our church. And I found it, to be honest, really hard to intercede and to pray for a while. And through this personal retreat, I won't get into all the details because a lot of it are, like, between God and I, but um, there's this one morning that I woke up, and I started to feel like my 
like my soul was being revived and fresh oxygenated blood was pumping through my soul again, that sort of thing. And um, I started to intercede for the church and for the city again. And as I was praying and interceding, I felt like God say, um, oh, there you are. Or like, welcome back. Or like, it was almost as if this was like what I was like meant, this is who God made me to be. Like, oh, now, now you're back. See, this is it. This is what I've like, this is what I, it was something, it was that emotion, that feeling. And it felt so like being embraced by God, like welcome back. And I think that's just not for me. I think that's for all of us. Like all of us have this call to intercede for our kids, to intercede for our church family, to intercede for our community, to intercede for our city. I think it's those moments when we're really in, in tune with God and praying and then starting to intercede for our city and for our family or for our church, whatever it is, like, there's a sense that, yes, this is what I was made for. This is where I'm, I'm like, alive, I'm alive in God. And then on my return, just a week, like a week before I came back, I was in prayer again. Um, not that a long, that much time went, I was praying every day, but anyway. So I was prayer. And um, it was this really beautiful thing where I was praying and I heard God say, um, what are you going to be asking me for as you return? And it was almost like God asking me, what, so what are your prayer requests? It was just really, it was, it was pretty sweet. And I was like, wow, that is that's a great question. What am I praying for? Kind of like just kind of praying generally. He's like, I, I actually want to specifically answer your prayers. So what is it that you're praying for? And I wrote down five things. I'll share one with you now. And I think that's important here. This church, I've, I've been praying, and God, I believe God wants to answer this prayer, that God wants to breathe new life into this church, like pour out his presence and his spirit on our gathering. I, I've been praying that he gives us clarity and unity around our call as a church community and that God would hear us when we pray. So when we pray, God would answer our prayers. And I believe that God wants to answer that prayer. God's like, I, I want to pour out my presence and spirit, like a manifest manifestation of that. I'm with you guys. And I want clarity and unity. And I want to answer your prayers. I believe this is what, this is what God wants to do. Lastly, I just go back to Ephesians. It says in verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. All kinds. There's nothing too small. Prayer is lifting mind and heart to God. Sometimes the problem is we're not lifting our mind and our heart to God. We're lifting someone else's mind and heart to God. We're not lifting what's going on inside our minds and our hearts to God. Whether it's distraction, whether even if that's sexual preoccupation, to lift that to God. To God, this is where I'm at right now. And I'm lifting my heart and my mind to you. And I want to be in tune with your spirit even when I, when I feel like I'm struggling with temptation. Even when I'm struggling with distraction, even when I'm bored, even when I don't have that much faith. So what does praying in the spirit mean? It can mean praying in tongues, but it doesn't require that. It can mean that. This is what, it, what praying in the spirit means. Praying in the spirit is being deeply connected and alive to God at all times. It's like you are alive in the spirit. The spirit of God is the breath of God, the life of God. And we are connected to the life of God, the spirit of God. We're deeply connected to God. And because of that, we are empowered by God. So that when we pray, we are praying from a place of being with God. This isn't just an imperative in scripture, I believe. 
I believe, and I don't believe it's just a command. This is, though it is, an imperative and a command. Like, you must pray always. But I believe, I believe it's just an invitation. For every, every single one of our hearts, this is our deepest longing. Our deepest longing is to be um, in tune, in sync, connected with God. Every single one of us. No matter where you're at. No matter if it's your first time at church or whatever. We are told that there was only one time that disciples went to Jesus and said, teach us to do something. It was teach us to pray. Luke 11, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. What was their attraction to Jesus' prayer life? Many said he, that, you know, many have said that it was his power to overcome demons or his power to do miracles. His supernatural authority that he walked around. Maybe that could be it. I think and believe what impressed the disciples and what they wanted in their own lives was the depth and connectedness of Jesus' soul to the Father. They saw this. I've been around a few people in my life that when I spend time with them, only a few, I think, I want to ask them to mentor me. You ever had that thought? Like, you're around someone, and you're like, I want them, I want this person. And oftentimes, I'm too, I don't have the courage to ask. But as I reflect as to why I want them to mentor me and why I want to spend time with them is the depth and the connectedness and the mellowness of their soul. They're so mellow of soul, so deeply connected to God. And I think after reflection, what I really want to ask them is this, not mentor me, it's teach me how you pray. That's what I really, I think that's what I really want to ask them. Teach me how you pray. Teach me how you relate with God in such a way that you live with a palpable connection with God. And I feel it when I'm with you. And I want that too. This is what I believe is happening. I have a friend who just turned 50. And for his birthday, what he asked for was a night to be thrown for him where everyone that was invited fasted the whole day and then at night prayed for him. Like, this is all I want for my birthday. I got an invitation, but I was gone and have an email, so whatever. So I didn't get to do this. He told me just this last week. I'm like, I had a birthday, and this is what happened. I was like, what? That is incredible. He's like, yeah, I just like, fast and pray for me for, on my birthday, and then, I, and then pray these prayer requests for me, and then I come lay hands on me and pray for me. I'm like, and he, at his 50th birthday, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm still asking for golf equipment for my birthday. Like, I'm like, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach, I, teach me this. I think this is what the disciples were asking. Teach me to pray. So yes, they wanted Jesus' power, but not his power to do crazy miracles as much as his power to disarm a room by his presence. His power over, even just as he walked into a room, the power he had over the enemy. They wanted Jesus' power to be big-hearted, to love beyond his own tribe, to love poor and rich, to love from inside of place of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and fidelity, even though the world swirled around him in unpredictability. He had his, he was, Jesus walked with the Father. And they realized his power came from connection with a deep source through prayer, through constantly lifting to God what was on his mind and what was on his heart. And they saw that, and they wanted that connection for themselves. 
See, I think this is what every single one of us long for. Whether we know we long for it or not, we long for deep connection with God. We desire mellowness of heart, contentment of soul, and, and that comes from something only God can give. And I think our, by and large, our culture used to know our, our longing for God. Philosophers would speak of a desire of the part to return to the whole. Mystics would speak of the spark of the divine in us. Ancient Greeks spoke of something they called nostos or homesickness, a feeling of never being at home even when you're at home. Vikings would call it wanderlust, the insatiable need to push further and further into the horizon. Shakespeare called it immortal longings. Augustine prayed to God, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Poet E.E. E. Cummings said, for every mile the feet go, the heart goes nine. I love that quote. For every mile the feet go, the heart goes nine. All of us have these feelings in us. We long and we desire and we want. We want rest and peace and contentment. No matter how many things we accomplish in life, it's like not ever enough. Our heart goes nine miles. But we trivialize this longing. We all have this longing. We trivialized it. We've, we've given it concrete names beyond the mystical longing for God. We've given it names like, I'm longing for good sex. I'm longing for success. I'm longing for a meaningful job. I'm longing for life impact. But what we really long for is life with God. So I believe this question that disciples ask, Lord, teach us to pray, is really a question about the meaning of life. They're asking Jesus, teach us to find that connection with the Father to help us find what we are really longing for. But like I said last week, guys, this, there is no life hack for this. There is no life hack for this. The only, and you know this deep down, you know that what this takes is an inward journey with God through prayer. We know that. A lot of us need just to be reminded of the power of prayer, like we tr I tried to do today. Some of us just need the time, like now. Like I just need to start doing this. Let me close with a very practical story, something I realized during this last season of my life as well. Have you ever seen that movie, 50 First Dates? <laughs> Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore, classic Adam Sandler, right? Um, Drew Barrymore has, in this movie, short-term memory loss. And she can't remember one day to the next after this like car wreck she was in where she hit a, a tree. All the people she meets, and even the people and the person that she falls in love with, Adam Sandler's character, she forgets. She goes to sleep, wakes up, and forgets everything. And by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, but whatever, it's really old, that's on you if you haven't seen this. Um, <laughs> by the end of the movie, in order to progress and move on in her life, she's given a video that she has to watch every morning when she wakes up. And it details her life, and what happened to her, how she fell in love with Adam Sandler's character, and the life she now lives. And every morning she goes through the emotional roller coaster of realizing who she is. And this is what I realized over this last season of my life. My life is sadly a lot like that. I, I can have the best, most incredible day with God. I go to sleep, I wake up, I forget all about it. I wake up the next day, I'm like, who am I? Like, what am I, what am I, what do I do? Like, I just forget. I forget every single morning I wake up. Like, it could be the most incredible day. I can wake up on Monday. I woke up last Monday. I totally forgot who I was. I'm like, what happened yesterday? I was like, I didn't know what day it was. I just, this happens to me every single day. 
And what I've learned is that I need to wake up. And I need to spend time reminding my soul who I am in Christ. I need to put this video tape in and like, Dave, this is who you are. Welcome to your life. And this is what Christ has done for you. And this is the gospel of Jesus. And this is how he's died to redeem you and save you. And this is how he's called you. And this is, this is, the, this is the life you live. And this is the war that you're in. So be, be, be stand. When you've done everything, stand today. And I, I just need to be reminded of that again. With, with the aid of the drug of coffee and Jesus, those two things for me, like wake me up to like, oh yeah. And then I can walk out of my day and go, oh yeah, I remember who I am. But if I just get up and start, I just don't, I don't live out of any sort of identity. I don't live out of any sort of, this is who I am in Christ. This is what this does. This grounding of prayer reminds us, this is who you are. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for you. This is what he's called you. This is the war that we're in. So stand. And so church, there are a lot of things that we're, we have to pray for. A lot of things. We did prayers to the people today. And all those things, I don't know if that gave you language at all of the things that you know, like, ah, I want to pray for that and I want to pray for that. There are a lot of things that we need to pray for for ourselves and for our community and for our church and for our city and for our world. And so let's do that now. Let's t spend time responding to God through prayer and singing and the prayer teams will be available. If you have a specific request, they're like, would you join me in prayer for this? Sometimes it's good to, to pray with someone. Some of us just need this, like, I need that, like, connection with God. I don't have it. I want it through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the patience of this church uh, during our time this morning. I, I pray that we would now move into a time where we're relating to you in prayer. I pray that you would hear us as we pray, meaning, Jesus, would you answer our prayers the prayers of pe the people today as we bring our requests before you, all different kinds of requests, as we pray in the spirit, as maybe we might be led to pray with someone in this room or praying for someone that's not in this room or whatever it is, God. May you remind us again who you are. Remind us who we are in you and the life that we're called to live. Remind us again. That's what's so good about the church community is that every single week we're brought to the same place, the table of communion, and remember, Christ died, his body was broken, Christ was given for us, and Christ is coming again. And we need to take that in, Lord, every single week. Remind us who we are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.